And I'm going to ask you to take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Luke this morning. For those that have been with us, you'd be accustomed to me saying turn to the book of Acts. But we're going to take a couple weeks away from our series Unstoppable in the book of Acts and focus our time and attention over these next couple weeks uh, to the subject matter of Christmas. And uh, uh, as uh, the greeting time was taking place, each week that I uh, share from God's word during this time, I'll put one of my favorite songs uh, on during our greet time and uh, that song was that's Christmas to me and it's just a song that gets me into the mood of Christmas and if you're like so many people today music is what your Christmas celebration is all about uh, for years in fact for centuries the church has uh, fallen in love with singing songs about the truth of the season that we're celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and whether it's Bing Crosby the Trans-Siberian Orchestra Mariah Carey or Michael Buble or anybody in between, uh, no doubt many of you fall in love, <clears throat> excuse me, with the Christmas season because of music, the music that plays in your head and your heart. And uh, we know that's a part of our custom here in the Chicagoland area. Uh, we have radio stations that vie to be the first radio station of the year to play 24-hour Christmas music. And if I remember right, it started the first week of November. And so Christmas music has been playing on an FM radio station in our area for now uh, over uh, six weeks and will go until the new year. And that's been a part of the custom for a long, long time. In fact, many of the Christmas carols that we sing um, are songs that have been sung for centuries. And, uh, and they come as a way of tradition because the first Christmas was surrounded by music as well. Uh, in Luke's gospel, we see in the two chapters where he unveils the Christmas story, we are shared with us four Christmas carols, if you will. You could call them the original Christmas carols. I, I want to call them the glorious sounds of Christmas because in his narrative of the Christmas story, he shares that in each significant encounter with God that people had, revolving around the Christmas season, they broke out in song. Today we're going to look at Zechariah's song as he learns about his wife who was barren, is about to give birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Then we're going to see next week, and we sang this morning about Mary and what, what the church has called her Magnificat, which is her praise and worship over the news that she was going to have uh, the long-awaited Messiah and that she would have the privilege of, of mothering him and caring for him. And she breaks out in song. And then, and then the angels... They break out in song as they announce to the shepherds on that Christmas Eve night of the coming of the newborn king and singing glory to God in the highest. And then as Joseph and Mary, after Jesus' birth, present Jesus in the temple, an aged man, Simeon, who's a priest waiting on what is called the consolation of Israel, the, the news of Jesus, the Messiah being born in Israel, he gets to take that little infant child into his arms, and this old aged man breaks out in song. And these four songs recorded in Luke are the carols that the early church would sing. They would put them to music and they would sing of the praises of God. And this morning, we come to Zechariah's song. And I want to call Zechariah's song in our modern vernacular um, a blue Christmas. 
You know, the song that was sung by Elvis Presley, the one that's been made really, really well known. I'll help you out a little bit with regards to it if you don't know the song. How many love this song? How many hate this song? You see, with Elvis, it's one of those things you either love him or hate him. And i got to be honest with you, it drove me nuts that I had to call this, because this is one of the worst songs ever written in Christmas history. And I'll be honest with you, Elvis and the Beatles should not sing Christmas songs. Amen? Uh, no help? All right, I'll leave it at that. So, so we know that as Elvis would sing, it was going to be a blue Christmas for him. He sings of a man who is blue because his wife, or not wife, his love, or maybe his wife, his love uh, isn't going to be with him to celebrate Christmas. And what we begin to learn is that even some of what Elvis was talking about was true of his own life. That in times where he should have been enjoying family and friends and all of that, that for him, as he would share in interviews later, it was a blue season for him. Well, in each of these songs that we're going to talk about, I, I want to do what my peers would come to recognize and know, uh, is go behind the music. Remember that VH1 uh, TV show where they would go behind the music, get to know the band, get to know the reason for the song, and, and the lyrics of the song, and the reason for the song would take on a greater level of personalization because we would learn a little bit more about the people and their times and, and the situations they were living in when these songs came to existence, knowing that Elvis was truly singing from a place of brokenness, uh, gives reason to understand why he would sing a song like Blue Christmas. And I want you to recognize this morning, as we look at Zachariah's life, we're going to see a song uh, that comes out, it begins awful blue. There are times of trouble, times of, of difficulty, and yet, because of God working in his life, because of God uh, being actively involved in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, he could take what was a blue Christmas and turn it into one of great joy, one of great peace, and one of great happiness, because he knew that God had a plan, and that that plan was being lived out right before his eyes. So this morning, we want to look at this, and we need to recognize this morning that as we look at our text this morning, we see a situation, a situation, write this down, a situation that is really close to home. As we look at Zechariah's life, even though we're, we're uh, divided by 2,000 years, we see that the life that Zechariah and Elizabeth are living and what they're encountering is a situation not very different from our own. Let, let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you and turn to page 855. Page 855. And Luke tells the story. And we've been loving the story that Luke has been telling about the early church in the book of Acts. And so now we're going to hear the story of how the birth of our Lord and Savior takes place. And before we can do that next week, we're going to learn about John the Baptist, who was going to be his forerunner, the one who was going to prepare the people for Jesus' coming. And it tells us that his birth went about like this. It said, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the a division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now let's just stop there. 
And we'll take the story little by little. But we are told Luke, a great historian, announces to us what the time and place is. He wants us to know exactly when all of this transpires. And he tells us it happened in the days of Herod. Now that's an important marker. First of all, as a historian, it's an important marker to tell the reader where in human history this place finds itself. And so we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth live in the days of King Herod of Judea. And that would be able, through all the other history that we have, both secular and sacred, that would allow us to pinpoint exactly when Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. But it tells us more than that. It tells us that uh, under this rule and reign of King Herod, we can know some things. So it says all of this transpires in the days of Herod, king of Judea. I want you to know this morning that from that little postscript, if you will, we are given some explanation of the times they lived in. Number number one, write this down. It was a fearful time. It was a fearful time. You see, to live in Judea during that time of the first century, under the reign of King Herod, would have been a time of great fear. King Herod was not a benevolent king, as others had been in the past. He was a vicious militaristic, angry, and violent king. Secular historians tell us of Herod that he would go about killing family members. Any family member, including some of his own children, he would put to death if he thought that they might be um, vying for his throne. In fact, five days, five days before he would die, after serving for 33 years, he would put to death one of his own sons because he thought his son was vying for his throne. This guy was a bloodthirsty man, and he had many, many coup attempts that took place, and he would, because he ruled with an iron fist, knock them down and strike fear into all who came around him. And because of that, all of Judea lived their lives on pins and needles. They were always concerned, but to make that even uh, a bigger of an issue was that the Roman Empire was the ruling uh, authority in all of Judea. And so while King Herod was a king of the Jews, he was a subordinate to the Roman Empire and to Caesar. And for a Jewish individual, recognizing that Rome was in charge meant that you were a second-class citizen. And so what it meant was, is as you went about in Judea, even though that was your home territory, that Romans and people from other places got first crack at getting the best of the food, the best of the opportunities, the best of jobs. You, in many ways, were an occupied people. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth went around, not with freedom, not with joy, not with peace, but a sense that we have a corrupt government, And we have a conquering government that looks at us as something less than what we are. They weren't even really Roman citizens in any way, shape, or form. And they weren't allotted many of the freedoms and opportunities that the Romans would have had in the area of Judea. It was a time of great fear. You were worried about the political climate of the day. Notice in the days of Herod, king of Judah, it wasn't just fearful times. What I want you to know is fragile times. Fragile times. We are told that in the days of King Herod, king of Judea, that this was the time during the first century. The first century was a time that uh, the children of Israel had been at a low point. The nation of Israel was occupied. 
God hadn't spoken for 400 years. In fact, the last of the prophets, Malachi, had been four centuries since he had penned his words into what was recorded Old Testament scripture. And in those 400 years, the people of God had long wondered, had God left us? Was the God who had served our forefathers no longer serving us as he had with our our grandparents? And as a result, many people in the day of Zechariah and Elizabeth were walking away from the faith. And who could blame them? Their leaders, their, their priests, and, and the rabbis of the day had, had thrown away the Old Testament scriptures and rendered them useless and now had taken on a whole set of rules and regulations in, in the Talmud and the Mishnah, these commentaries on the law written by man, and these man-made documents became a scripture to them instead of God's word itself. And, and these scriptures would say to them uh, that uh, to love God and to be a part of the kingdom of God uh, was not to believe in God, but was to uh, pay homage to the priest and those in leadership, to be yoked into all of these rules and regulations. Corruption was big in the first century in Jewish religion. The Sanhedrin was a group that was political on one side, religious on the other. And when you merge politics and religion, you will get something very, very ugly each and every time. And so as a result, Zechariah's faith community was one that was corrupt to the core. Jesus would call this out over and over again during his earthly ministry, calling the very men who were to serve and honor God by loving and caring and teaching for the people, he would call them a brood of vipers. And so it wasn't just fearful times where the political unrest of Judea was going on, but the spiritual community that Zechariah and Elizabeth were was something suspect as well. And there's a problem in that because as people, what we will do is we will um, look to the world for our peace and our joy and our happiness, and we usually do that with our government saying, government, help us live the good life, help us pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when the government doesn't, we turn to our faith community. We go a little smaller. And what we do is say, well, the government's not doing it, and, and Washington's a mess, and so what we'll do is we'll go to Sugar Grove, we'll go to our faith community. But as Zechariah and Elizabeth did, their faith community was corrupt. It had given up hope. It had rendered itself powerless. And so during these fearful times and these spiritually fragile times, one would then turn to their home. When things aren't going well in the world and maybe not going well in your faith community, you go inward and you focus in at home. And notice it tells us in the text... It says, in the days of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, both righteous, blameless in all the commandments of God. And, and it says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And so Luke tells us that when they turn inward, there's a problem there. And so we've got fearful times, fragile times. I want you to know the times of Zechariah and Elizabeth were frustrating times as well. Frustrating times. We are told that even though, even though they walked blamelessly before the Lord, they had a problem, which is a reminder to us that just because you're faithful doesn't mean life is going to go altogether great for you. 
And so there's this issue. The one thing, they're serving and honoring God. Seemingly things are going well for them in the sense of their relationship with God. But there's one glaring problem. There's one glaring issue. And that issue is that Zechariah's wife Elizabeth is barren. And they have no children. And the hope for children is gone. They are advanced in years. Now, a couple things about this. First of all, when it speaks of barrenness, there would be no greater curse in the first century time than to be called barren. And here's why. Because in the first century time, there was this superstition that is false, altogether false, that to be barren means to be cursed by God. And so imagine that you would go to your home and nobody would want to talk with you because they thought you were cursed by God. And they don't want anyone to be around. Kind of like a person with the flu, you don't want to be around them. And so you're just like, stay away, keep your distance. I don't want your curse to get on me. And so Elizabeth would go out through her life, though she was faithful and righteous, though she was a godly wife, though this barrenness had nothing to do with her, she would walk around with a curse. Notice in verse 25 of our text, we see how far this goes. It says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. She feels cursed. And no doubt some that feel this way as well today. Now why the reason for this curse? Because she's barren. They can't have kids. Barrenness could be summed up in one word, frustration. For any of you who have struggled with infertility, you recognize and know that each and every month, month upon month, comes the realization that it didn't happen in the sense that something is wrong. And it leads people to isolation. It leads people to think there's something wrong with me. Something God's not happy with me. I should desire children. God should want me to have children. And if I have this desire and God has this desire, then why isn't it happening? I want you to recognize no one's ever happy when they find out they're barren. Women don't throw barren parties. They don't get together and open gifts and, and have uh, sandwiches and, and uh, punch and, and get together as a group of ladies. And why are we gathering together, the ladies ask. It's because I'm barren. I can't have kids. Yippee-yay. That never happens. Because barrenness breaks the heart of women, especially with people all together. And it's a recognition and a, and a knowledge to know Something isn't right. For those that struggle with infertility, my heart breaks for you. And I pray that this story would be a story that God can work even amidst that struggle and that issue. Now we are told that there's no hope. The hope of having a child is long gone. We are told by Luke that they were both advanced in years. One commentary put it that they had one foot in the grave and another on a banana peel. That helps. The King James Version is a little more harsh with their age, and it says that Elizabeth was stricken with age. Some of you this morning feel stricken with age, amen? Amen, I heard that. But they were advanced in years. And so they're serving the Lord, they're honoring God, and, and, and now what they had hoped for wasn't going to happen. 
Now, I want you to recognize this morning that with every story in the Scripture, there's always some sort of overarching story that's going on. And so in this microcosm, we've got fearful times, fragile times, frustrating times, and it's being experienced by this couple. But I want you to know that this is the tale, this is the story of Israel. During the days of, of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Israel was a part of fearful times. Israel was a part of a fragile time. And Israel was a time of frustration. People had given up hope that Messiah was going to come. And because they had given up hope, they began to struggle with following God. And I want you to know something this morning. The true test of your Christian character will not be found when everything is going well, but it is when everything is falling apart. You want to see the true merits of your Christianity? Test it not when everything is going perfectly. Test it when nothing seems to be going right. And here's what we learn. We learned they were blameless. Now, that word blameless doesn't mean perfect. Because as we interpret Scripture with Scripture, we know that the Scriptures say, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that includes Zechariah and Elizabeth. That there is only one individual who is not found with sin, and that is Jesus Christ who came to save us from our sins. And so... <clears throat> This righteous and blameless couple are a couple that struggle with sin and all that, but the manner of their life, the tenor of their life, the, uh, the totality of their life, if you will, is marked by wonderful obedience. Now here's the question. Will they obey God when God doesn't answer their prayer? You see, when everything is falling apart, we vacillate, we waver between faithfulness and faithlessness. And I will tell you, that is a great temptation. There's a great temptation when things aren't going well, especially after you've prayed about it, after you've asked God to answer that prayer over and over again, and now after the years of praying and asking, now you know it's never going to happen. There's a part of you that says, God, you're not doing it for me, so why should I do it for you? And some of you may find yourself there this morning. You've served, you've honored God. And now God has thrown you this inevitable curveball. And you're like, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. I remember when I was 14 years of age, when we had learned of my brother's death, I thought my parents were going to give it all up. And the reason why is because I thought they should. They'd served, they had honored God. And what's God going to do? He's going to take their oldest son at 16 years of age. That doesn't seem very fair. That doesn't seem very right. There are very few people as righteous and holy as my mom and dad who had served as a godly example to their children only to have God say, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to make your life a little miserable. And my parents, just as everyone else has to, needs to make a decision. Am I going to be in that moment faithful, or am I going to then leave and allow faithlessness to become a part of my life? Here's the great story and the great model of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were faithful. And it's a call to us, no matter how difficult things are, whether you find yourself on the mountaintop or the valley of the shadow of death, you have one calling in life to serve and praise and honor God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And every part of you in those moments will say, give it up and just go home and live your life apart from God. But they don't. And it's in this that we learn that this situation is very much like so many of us. There are many here today who are living during fragile and fearful times. 
in times of frustration, whether it's we look to Washington and all the mess that's going on there, there's just bad news. Every time I turn on the TV, there's more bad news going on in our world. And then I look uh, to uh, spiritual things, and I learn that the spiritual reality of the church isn't as strong as I would hope it would be, not just here, but all over the United States of America. And the hope that I would have as a pastor that we would be strong and vibrant seems to waver a whole lot more in faith than I would like to see. And then, and then I talk with people and they tell me about their home life and we've got marriages that are broken. We've got relationships between children and their parents or between family members that is um, uh, all messed up. We've got financial issues. In fact, this year alone, our church benevolence has been used more than, than any other time in, in, in the past uh, several years. We are in some turbulent times, some broken times. And it's easy for many of us today to say, I'm not looking forward to Christmas. In fact, Christmas is just a reminder that God has failed me again and again. And so you know what? I'm not going to invest in your kingdom, God. I'm not going to invest in your commands, God. I'm going to walk away. It's in those moments that we need to recognize what Luke tells us about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now notice, going on through the text, we learn some more about him. He's a priest, verse 8. Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and, and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Let's just stop there. So, what's going on? Zechariah is a part of the priesthood. Now that would have meant he was a part of somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to 20,000 um, different priests in the area of, of Israel during that time. And that's an important thing. You know, there had to be uh, a couple million people living in the area of Israel during the time. So to be a part of that fifteen to 20,000 men is quite an honor. He was a priest. And kind of like our army reservists who go and, and are um, always on duty, but they have active duty a couple weeks weeks out of the year, uh, the priests had active duty. And so two weeks out of the year, the, his division, uh, Zachariah's division, would be called up. And they would go into Jerusalem, and they would oversee the offering, and they would oversee all of the worship that would be going on during that time. And uh, so Zachariah and Elizabeth make their journey to uh, Jerusalem, and for a couple weeks he's serving there. During that time, his division has a raffle. And it's by lot, so it's some sort of rolling of the dice or some sort of pulling a name out of a hat. And his name is drawn out as the one who's going to go and make sacrifice and burn incense in the Holy of Holies. And so he gets chosen, which is an honor, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You're not going to get this opportunity more than once. And so he, by happenstance, right, just by chance, he gets his name called. He goes into the Holy of Holies, something that he had seen men do for some time. He's an advanced man in age. And so he had seen this happen over and over again. And no doubt, while it was a significant thing that he would do, men would come out behind the curtain and they wouldn't be any different. There would be no change. And they would be in there for a similar amount of time each and every time. But what he expects to happen doesn't. Which is a reminder that sometimes when we least expect it, God's going to speak to us. And in that moment when he's before the Holy of Holies... 
as he's burning incense to the Lord and lifting up a prayer, we are told that an angel appears to him. Now notice what happens when the angel appears to him. It says he's standing on the right side of the altar, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell... Uh, fear fell upon him, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now I want you to know there were probably two prayers that Zechariah prayed as a righteous and holy man. Number one, for the Messiah to come, and that was the righteous prayer of righteous Israel for these many, many years, that Messiah would come, and personally, the prayer that he would have a child. Now that prayer probably had gotten out of habit as soon as his wife's childbearing years had passed and those had been long gone now that she was stricken with age as the King James says. And so his prayer is is that God I got two prayers for myself and for my nation and I want you to know that God is going to answer both of those prayer requests at the same time. And, and what he does is, is here he presents to uh, Gabriel presents to um, Zechariah, here's what's going to happen. Notice he says, you're going to have a child. And he tells, the, he tells him that uh, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, he's going to turn away uh, the children of Israel from their own ways to God. Verse 16, he'll go before him in spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord, a people prepared. He's talking about what John the Baptist is going to do. You're going to have a baby. And this is what he's going to do. Now notice the response by Zechariah. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I want you to watch this interaction here. So he's in the Holy of Holies. He's burning the incense. He's praying his prayers. Angel shows up. He's freaked out. The angel says, listen, I've heard your prayer, and my God has heard your prayer, and God has sent me to tell you you're going to have a baby. He is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Your two prayers are going to be answered. You would think, you would think, a righteous and holy man, just like so many of you, your response would be, awesome, I knew God was going to do it. That's not what Zechariah says. Zechariah says, listen, it ain't going to happen. I'm old, and my wife's even older. Okay? And not happening. And I want you to know there's a principle and a lesson to be seen there. And that is many times when our problems are big, we have the tendency in our faithlessness to make our problems bigger than God. And when you do that, God becomes impotent to be able to address those issues instead of being the omnipotent one who has control and power over all things. And there's a worldview perspective that's going on, this battle that's taking place. Zechariah says, my problem is bigger than God. Gabriel stops and he goes, are you kidding me? I was just with the boss. I was in the presence of the Lord. And you think an old woman not having a baby is too big for him? I saw that God create the world and the universe in six days. I saw that God, out of the dust of the ground, make man and woman. I've seen that God bring down rulers and authorities. I've seen that God throw out a third of the angels in heaven because they rebelled against them. I've seen God do mighty things. 
And and by the way, Zechariah, I have seen God put in the womb of an aged woman named Sarah a promised baby. And if he could do it in Genesis, surely he can do it here in the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to notice for a moment what's taking place. Zechariah, his God is his problem. And some of us this morning, our problem has become our God. Not that you worship him as being happy that your problem's there, but the problem becomes the biggest thing in your life. And so you pay time and worry and anxiety and issues, and you've made your problem an idol. And it's bigger than God. And so instead of worshiping God, you worry about the problem. Instead of adoring God, you're anxious about the problem. And you put all of your time, all your talents, all your treasures before the problem instead of God. Gabriel says, I know God, and he's way bigger than your problems today. And so what you need to do and what I need to do is we need to ask the question, are we going to have a Zechariah faithlessness or a Gabriel or angel of the Lord faithfulness that sees God high and lifted up bigger than anything that comes our way? You see, when we see God as bigger than our problems, then he alone will be our savior. And so Zechariah says, listen, I don't see how this could happen. And Gabriel says, I've heard enough. How many parents, let's just be real, how many parents wish you had the power of the angel of the Lord? Mute. Just hit the mute button. And that's exactly what he does. Notice in the text. He says, I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I went to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you'll be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Listen, not in your time. Underline that if you struggle with waiting, God's plans will be fulfilled in their time, in his time, not our own. And he says, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they're wondering at his delay in the temple. Where is he? Did he die? Nobody takes this long. What is going on? And when he came out, he's unable to speak. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. No doubt he was hysterical in some way, shape, or form. And it says that he was unable to speak. And so he kept making signs of them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And then we are told in verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, we stop there, and that's where the story stops, and we've got to turn the page. So everybody turn the page, because we're going to look at what was just before us next week. Because as God's doing a work in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, he too is doing a work in Mary and Joseph's life. And we're going to see how those things come together here in a moment. But notice we go to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called by that name. Leave it to your relatives and not like how you name your children, right? Some of you have been there before. 
And they said to her, none of your relatives have been named that, okay? And then they made signs to his father. He still can't talk, so they got to make signs to him what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, which is a first century iPad, teenagers. That's what that is. A writing tablet. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors and all these things were talked about through all of the hill country of Judea. And all who heard him laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And what does Zechariah do then? He has this baby, this child. His name is going to be John. He's obedient. He's now gotten his voice. Think about it. You haven't spoken for nine months. What is the first word that's going to come out of your mouth? Zacharias was one of praise. Which begs the question, how much praise is coming out of our mouth? Though we live in frustrating, fragile, and fearful times, how much praise is coming out of our mouths when we are given opportunity to speak? He breaks out in song. And I want you to notice this first of the Christmas carols is a song that we can sing with him. Write that down. It's a song we can sing along with. We can sing it with him. Because notice what it says. He opens, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth, by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before God all our days the song has two stanzas the first stanza has to do with the plans of God the plans of God. And I want you to know this morning, God has a plan. He has a plan. No matter how difficult and how, how heartbreaking your circumstances are, God has a plan. And God has been sharing this plan since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the garden, when Adam and Eve fell, God comes in and he says, listen, I've got a plan. And I'm going to promise there's one coming who will crush this serpent's head, who's going to destroy the works of the devil. And that plan has been lived out and been foretold about by the prophets year after year. And that plan continues to move forward. And we need to recognize God has a plan for us. And it's a promise plan. And I want you to know it's a plan that is being lived out in love. Notice the phrases there, tender mercies, his love, his regard. This is not a devious plan by God. This is a plan by a loving God who cares and and longs to love on his people. He loves Zachariah and Elizabeth, and he longed to give them a child, but it would be according to his plan. Notice that amidst this plan, everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a part to play. It's the Christmas season where we see productions happen, and we go to our elementary schools and to our different community events, and these Christmas plays involve everybody. Everybody's got a part. Nobody is left out. 
And I love that about Christmas. There are so many characters to the Christmas story that there are so many parts to play. And I want you to recognize, so it is with God's plan. We all have a part to play. Well, notice what this baby's part is going to be. It tells us a couple things about John the Baptist. In verse 76, and you, child, and he must have been holding the child at this time. You, he's holding him up, and, and, and just the joy that must have filled this old man's heart. This long-awaited baby. And he says, you, you little infant, you've got a part to play. And he says, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Verse 76 has John the Baptist's job description, which is two parts. And I want you to know that as John the Baptist had a job description, so do we. The first part of the job description is he would be a prophet, a mouthpiece, one who would speak on behalf of God. He would announce to the world their need to turn to the Lord. Number two, it was to prepare people's hearts to receive the Lord. So one was a speaking part, the other was, was using uh, his life to be an advertisement, a sneak preview of what Jesus was going to be. And he lived that out perfectly. In fact, Jesus would say that there's no greater man born of woman than John the Baptist. How would you like Jesus to say that about your kids, right? It'd be pretty awesome. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. But I want you to recognize, just as John the Baptist was a prophet, and just as he prepared the people for the coming of the Lord, that is our job description as Christians. We are called to open our mouth and declare to the world that Jesus is Lord. We should, with our words, point people to Jesus. How? By living in a way that advertises the coming of the Lord. How do we do that? We live in anticipation. We live in obedience. We live with a commitment that is dedicated to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we do, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and our classmates look at us and they say, there's something different about that person. The way they love, the way they care, the way they serve. There's something about them. And that's when our mouths get put to use because we say it's because of Jesus. And so we are prophets and we are ones who go before the Lord. And let us remember that John the Baptist prepared the way for the people of the coming of the Lord for his first coming. Let us never forget that we are preparing people for the Lord's second coming. And so we've got work to do. And every one of us has a part to play. Are you doing it? John the Baptist did his job and he did it well. Not perfectly. Zechariah and Elizabeth played their part and did it well. Not perfectly. I would be remiss to say Mary played her part. She didn't do it perfectly as some of our friends might say from other churches. But she did it well in obedience. And so we've got a part to play. Will we do it perfectly? No. We will vacillate and waver between faithfulness and faithlessness. But the manner and tenor of our life should be one where we are blameless before the Lord so that we might speak and we might act in such a way that prepares people for Christ's coming. Now here's the amazing thing, and I'll close, and it's not a long point at all. But this song leads to the true star of the show. 
Put in your, put in, put yourself into Zachariah's shoes. He's a new dad. He's a dad who had been waiting for this baby for a long, long time. And he's looking at the baby. And the baby's his life, right? I mean, how great is it to have a baby? The joy that I know I've experienced with my three kids. What a, what a great joy to, to, to see how God would do that. And that's where the struggle of infertility is so great and so difficult. And so he's sitting there and he's holding his baby before him and, and he's saying, you're great, you're, you're awesome, I, I love you. And it's just all good and, and wonderful and should be done by a dad and a mom to a child. But what is the tendency so often that that child that we hold and begins to grow up around us becomes the idol that we never saw coming? And how many of us have reduced our commitment to Jesus and raised our commitment to our children? How many of us have sacrificed our marriages for the sake of kids? And what, what we're reminded of is as great of a child as John the Baptist was, and he was great. We'll learn next week that, that even in his mother's womb, at the very name of Jesus, he's doing somersaults, filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he comes out. He's a great kid. And yet Zechariah reminds us as parents, our kids are always secondary to the one star of the show, and that's Jesus. Notice what Zechariah says. After saying in verse 76 that he's, his child is going to give knowledge in verse 77 to his people and all of that, notice what the text says in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, underline that word sunrise, that's, that's speaking of Jesus, the one that's coming. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Who's he talking about there? Not John the Baptist, but Jesus. How does he know about Jesus? Turn a page back. Because in verse 26, Mary, the cousin of Elizabeth, is going to come and announce to Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife that she's going to have a baby, and that her baby is going to be the Messiah, the Savior of all. Real quick, how hard could that have been? You come into a group of people and you say, hey, uh, my, my kid didn't get kicked out of class this week, and everybody's talking about how their kids are the valedictorian. Or you say, my kid, man, he, he got a minute on the basketball court, and, and then the other person talks and says, well, my kid's the star of the team. And Zachariah and Elizabeth had to have a gut check. And let's just be honest humanly. John the Baptist was great, but Mary's baby was going to be a whole lot greater. And the significance that Zachariah could say, listen, praise be to God. My kid doesn't need to be number one. In fact, the only thing, listen, this is so important. The only thing I care about is that my baby lives and works and serves this other baby. And some of us as parents have our priorities all wrong about our kids. The only thing we need to worry about is that our kids have a good walk with Jesus. That they walk and talk with Jesus. That they serve and honor Jesus. That they obey Jesus. Can I tell you, when we get that right, listen, the college question will be taken care of. When we get that right, the marriage question will be taken care of. When we get that right, the retirement questions will be taken care of. Let's get our relationship with Jesus right. 
And Zechariah does. And from a little baby infant in his hands, he says, listen, you're not the star of the show. Jesus is. And Jesus is going to do three things. Write these down. He's going to bring light to those in darkness. He's going to bring life to the dying. And he's going to bring leadership to those who lack direction. And I want you to know that Jesus would grow up and would become a man. And his way would be paved before him by John the Baptist, his cousin. And Jesus would live and do these things. And so that's why we sing about Jesus. That's why this dad who waited for a son sang about Jesus because not a son can't do this. I got three and I love them, but those three boys can't do it. And and I'll be honest, I can't do it for my father either, but Jesus can. Jesus can. And we need to turn to Jesus. And we need to love Jesus. And we need to ask Jesus in our darkness to bring us light. In our lives that we find ourselves dying, bring us the life that we need. And when we lack direction and we lack wisdom, that we turn to Jesus and that He will give us what we need in our hour of need. It is then and only then, listen to me very carefully, it is then and only then in fragile, frustrating, and fearful times when you're ready to give up that you will at the top of your lungs sing praises of worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords.